live. Sorry I'm a few minutes late. Speaking of post-retirement today, any questions? What a face. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this, like, what is that feeling of being, you know, retired? People think it's like a life-changing, altering experience, and it is, and I'm gonna talk about it in this episode. But the reason I'm late today is because life goes on, and in this specific case, my one daughter was chasing my other daughter upstairs. They collided, she slipped, she fell. My other daughter's a year and a half, the youngest one and uh, not the one that's still in the belly, the one that's actually a year and a half. She slipped and fell and banged her teeth on our brand new porcelain tiles. I don't care about the tile at all, like I could care less, but her, her teeth almost went right through her lips. So it was a crisis where her lip was swollen, there was blood everywhere, it was just this, holy crap, it was stressful situation. As a parent, it you know made my heart uh, worry, but thankfully she's okay, the bleeding has stopped, we applied pressure, we're going to definitely have to watch the wound to make sure that everything is good to go uh, in the coming you know days. But uh, that was why I was late today. So apologies for being late. Stuff happens, life happens, especially if you lead a busy life. You know, we, we have a dog and about to have three kids here and we're early retired. We're living that fire lifestyle. And I want to speak to it because I'm coming up now on four years since I quit my job, since I was at the 4% safe withdrawal rate, to the point where I could invest my entire net worth and live off 4% per year, which safely allows me to never need to ever work again. Uh, my portfolio, as you guys know, in real estate has produced a ton more uh, as a rate of return and from cash flow than I, I could ever need. So my net worth gone from the point of being, when I retired, I was more lean fire to now really, really fat Lux fire where I can never spend the passive income um, that's coming in. I'm at a point where I, I just don't have those sorts of needs. Even if we went on lavish trips or upgraded in many different ways, I could stop house hacking as an example. There's tons of things I could do that still wouldn't even uh, change the lifestyle and the dynamic. And that's one piece of the post-retirement puzzle I think a lot of people don't factor in. A lot of us type A's who have saved enough money to get to that point of freedom, of saying F you to the man, of quitting the job, selling the business, whatever, being done with that. Because I think having a business doesn't make you financially independent. When you get to that point, a lot of us still want to do something. And we might find that for time, you know, for a little bit of time, we're cool with doing a new business, but then we get bored of that too and we'll go back to retirement or do some new venture or hobby that we want to chase. It just so happens though that these type A personalities, people like me, people like you who are watching, who have been able to save money, if you can already save and work a full-time job and pick up side hustles, you're built of the cloth that is required to be financially independent. You're cut from the same cloth, and so your net worth will keep growing. It's just, it's inevitable. Uh, you will grow faster than you're depleting your resources if you've planned out your fire journey just right. What you'll find is typically you'll still be working in some sort of capacity, and uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Oh, I got some questions here. What a face I do for clickbait. Um, yeah, that's definitely, that is a face you should do. Um, the one here I was just kind of teasing along. To be honest with you, a title like this one, I don't expect to get a lot of views. Most of my viewership wants to know how to retire. They want to know, you know, using real estate or using, you know, stocks, what strategies can they use to stretch their money further? And that'll probably come up. It's a necessary discussion to have. But I just thought people might have questions about what it's like when you quit your job or leading up to quitting your job. How do you pull the trigger? Do you negotiate a severance package? I did. Um, these are all things you need to think about as you get ready to pull the trigger and then post retirement, what's it like? What do you do? You know, for a while it could be focused just on your kids. It could be focused on the fact that you want to travel or chase some new hobby or chase some business and just do it for the fun of it. Like if you make money, cool. If you don't, okay. You know, you weren't relying on that anyway. 
So it can be a great runway for chasing your passions and for doing what you want to do with your life. And that's the most important thing at the end of the day is in post-retirement, you're going to find that you'll continue to chase things, but it's having the flexibility to say yes and to say no. And I, I still struggle with this, but anyway, if you guys have any questions about the post-retirement lifestyle, about my personal situation, happy to share, happy to, to say, hey, this is the report. I'm, I just turned 28, so I started this journey when I had just turned, no, I was 24 in a bit, but it's coming up on four years on February 1st. So on February 1st, it'll be four years since I retired, since I reached my goal at 24 of being able to live off passive income. And I'm not talking like an Amazon business or real estate. I used real estate and I have invested in businesses in post-retirement, but I retired solely relying on a 4% safe withdrawal rate. I was the true real deal fire 4% SWR. And now my real estate portfolio has returned in some cases 30, 40% ROI. And so the 4% withdrawal rate that I need to sustain myself is way less than I'm producing a passive income. So I was in retirement, I've been maintaining well into the 90% savings rate. And you'd expect in retirement, you go from your savings rate down to near zero. You're just reinvesting inflation, right? So you can continue to ensure your passive income grows and outpaces inflation. But in my case, I've been making so much that I can't spend and I continue to invest. And so now I'm like, probably I'm at a one, yeah, I'm, I'm at a 1% safe withdrawal rate right now, I would say. If I withdrew 1% for my portfolio net worth every year, I could live on that like comfortably. Um, well, it depends on how, how comfortably you decide to live the luxurious lifestyle I'd like, you know, someday I would like to have, you know, a place where I could go away and we could have like six months in say Costa Rica or Florida or, or somewhere, Arizona, wherever, have a place that we can go away and have like a little mini economy going there and then have something going on here. And I think maybe even getting a Tesla would be kind of cool. I can afford those things now, but the way that my mind operates, I haven't earned it. And so I've got to earn that Tesla. And for me, that's, Investing, I have like a set percentage, say it's like, I think it's like 3% of my passive income I put towards a fun fund. So I do have a fun fund that I'm building and it's like, I gotta tell myself it's okay to get that Tesla. It's okay to accept that when I buy a Tesla in two years, it'll have depreciated 40%, right? So I'll have lost, say it's a $70,000 Tesla, I've lost 30, $40,000 in a year in depreciation. That's what really kills you on a purchase like that, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, Lots of things have, have changed. I retired as an example with one child, with a plan to have a second. So we knew we were gonna have two kids. And now I'm gonna have a third child, so three kids. And it might not even stop there, who knows? I mean, I can afford it. We love our children and it's been a great experience. I didn't even wanna have a dog as an example. And now I have a dog built into our financial plan. So things, things have changed. I retired, when I retired, we were living in a semi-duplex that was a thousand square feet up and I had a thousand square foot apartment that I had rented out. So we're living in a thousand, under, just under a thousand square feet. It's like 997 square feet. And now this house here I live in is 4,500 square feet. So my, my lifestyle has like quadrupled only because I've allowed it to, right? Because I could afford to. But it's one of those things I still house hack, by the way. I still, you know, I still have a split set up where I have people with me, right? And that's just my style. I like that duplex living. I like it. Now it's a mentorship program where the people living with me are part of my ecosystem and they're people that I, I like to surround myself with. And if they weren't there, it would be, there'd be an emptiness in my house. So I wouldn't be able to come down and I wouldn't be able to have those strategic conversations at night when my kids have gone to bed. It's the peace, like in residence where you have like your best friends around you. I wanted to create that, that I call it an entrepreneur. It's, it's, you started as a real estate mentorship, but it's really become an entrepreneur, you know, mentorship and entrepreneurship is, 
oh, honestly, I, I think that that's a piece of me that's like built into my DNA. I like being around business opportunities. When I look outside and I see grass growing, I see a business. I see who planted the grass. I see who's maintaining the grass. I th- see who's cutting it. I look at the trees. Everywhere I look, I see business opportunity. And I don't chase it all, but it's just the way my mind is wired. It's just how I, I think. And so being surrounded by that entrepreneurial culture and helping to facilitate that feels really good. Like helping the mentees grow their businesses. That's fun. So I just like being surrounded by entrepreneurship opportunities. And so that's just, that's my post-retirement. Everyone's is a little different. Um, I love being surrounded by my girls, surrounded by, you know, family that I love and friends and spending time with all of them and, and doing things that I enjoy. There are pieces of building businesses that I really enjoy, that I really love. Um, but there are also pieces of it that I don't like. And so as an example, I have property management that takes care of all my property management. I don't talk to my tenants. They don't have my number. They don't contact me. I don't place tenants. I don't deal with any maintenance requests, nothing. It's all outsourced. And even that is annoying. Managing the manager has become, it's weird how human, you know, human adaptation, I guess, is such that, you know, at first we accept that like the best is outsourced. And then we're like, you know what? It could be a little bit better. I could have none at all. I could have a situation where there would be, um, no issues at, at all, right? And so that's where I don't know, the human human brain just always wants better, always wants more. And so I think that's a big piece of your post-retirement um, satisfaction plan or like enjoyment plan is building in growth post-retirement. You don't just get to retirement and then stop. You need to keep growing. Even if it's not financially, pick one of the other seven dimensions. You guys have seen my video probably on the eight dimensions of wellness. This is the equation to happiness. Each person's factorial, like factorial in front of each of the, uh, in front of each of the quadrants or uh, elements of happiness is different, right? So some people it's about physical fitness and some people it's about emotional well-being and spiritual missions. For some people it's about, you know, cognitive mental growth. For other people it's about financial growth. There's just so many different facets and at different times in your life, you'd be really focused on different pieces, I think, in your journey. And whether you're retired or not, you should be focused on trying to be as happy as you can be. And a piece of that is looking back to that equation and saying, Hey, how do I rebalance here? I'm too heavy on the financial. I'm too heavy on the, you know, maybe I'm too heavy on the fitness and I need to pull back from the, the body health and focus on the mental health or the emotional environmental health. There's just so many different categories and awarenesses you need to be cognizant of post and pre-retirement. Um, but that's a big piece of enjoying your retirement is making sure that those areas are fulfilled and it doesn't have to cost a lot of money to be fulfilled in those areas, to be honest. Okay, let's do some questions here. Hey from Switzerland. Hey Joel, good to see you on, welcome. Johnny says, hey Mike, no need to apologize mate. Hey, thanks Johnny, appreciate the uh, the comment there. Yeah, my heart was just racing that my daughter's okay. Like hopefully she doesn't need stitches and with everything going on right now in the hospital system, we're like, we do not want to go to the hospital and thankfully, um, we have someone who's a nurse who's close by and a friend of ours and she's able to come over and take a look. So I'm very thankful that we were able to see that uh, my daughter doesn't need uh, stitches. We're pretty sure, pretty sure. We'll keep an eye on it and hopefully it'll be okay. Elizabeth says, hello from Georgia. Hello, Elizabeth. Elliot says, hey Mike, better late than never. Oh, thank you, appreciate that. I have never missed a live stream now in two years, every Wednesday, consistent around 7 p.m. Now it's not always at 7 p.m. Life happens. and. I don't necessarily prioritize this over my daughter's health, right? I just, I get to this when I can, but it's typically around 7 p.m. I've done it on vacation uh, without a doubt, even when I had uh, a course exam the next morning for my real estate license, 
that was a couple of years ago. I still made it in. I was in Newfoundland and we still did a live stream. The Wi-Fi was terrible. I think I was on my LTE of my data, but we made it work. So that's something that I pride uh, myself in is, is always trying to be consistent and trying to be uh, a man of my word. When I say I'm gonna do something, I do it. Even if it means you know, neglect my personal health to achieve such goal. Next one is currently reading Never Split the Difference. Fantastic book, by the way. I've skimmed it and I have friends who have read it and told me about it. I've read some synopses, but I'd like, it's on my list of things I'd like to do. Sit down and read some books. Uh, it's on my book list. Uh, based on your recommendation last week, really enjoying it. Thank you. Gary, it's a, it's a great book. A lot of people get a lot of value from it. I'm a big fan of it. Um, I wish I spent the time to read the whole thing, but from a negotiating perspective, it's, it's a good one. Joel says, uh, where would you invest as a first investment, stocks or real estate? Well, Joel, that depends on so many factors. For one, what do you currently do for work? What does your time look like in your schedule? Do you have time to invest in real estate and take on a tenant and take on all the stresses associated with that? Or do you want to hire management? Even if you hire management, getting to the finish line on a deal and searching for properties, buying the property, offering on it, financing on that property, then getting to the closing line, after that, all the renovations or whatever you're going to do to it, it's a lot, right? There's a lot of things you have to do to get a deal just to a point where it's stabilized and cash flowing, depending on how turnkey of a deal you bought, this could be a lot of time investment. And so I think, uh, I think that's a big piece of it when you're trying to decide what you wanna invest in is, hey, do I have the time to run a business or to invest in real estate? And to get a higher return in real estate, you really need to put in the time. So if you put in zero time, you could invest in real estate through a real estate investment trust or a REIT. I've talked about REITs a ton on this channel, not recently in the last few months, but I used to touch on it a ton. I was a big fan of REITs and I still am. You can get an eight to 12% return investing in a fund, a real estate investment trust. They'll then take your money, lever it up a little bit and invest it in public commercial real estate, you know, apartment buildings, stuff like that and pay you out a residual return, a unit return. And so it can get some appreciation that way. You can get some cash flow that way. They pay between six and 10% mostly. Some of the smaller uh, closed REITs that are not publicly traded, you can get invested in that'll pay eight to 12% range. That's not a guarantee. There could be years where it pays nothing. There could be years where it pays more, uh, but that's sort of the average of what you're going to see. It's like lending in a lot of ways, but it's just easier. You put it in and set it, forget it, and let them buy real estate for you. And so there are ways to invest in real estate where it's entirely outsourced. And that isn't like when you're a unit holder in a REIT, that's entirely outsourced. I think the only step um, back from that investing in real estate is almost as passive, not quite, that can get produced a little bit higher returns is lending. I think lending into real estate where you're the mortgage guy and you're putting the mortgage on the property. You have a similar security as a REIT. In fact, you're actually safer than the security of a REIT. In a REIT, you're the equity holder. So you're like the money going in for the down payments on the deals. You're not the lender that's in first secure position. I'd rather be the lender and get a similar or higher return. So the reason I stopped talking so much about REITs, they're fantastically passive ways to invest in real estate is because I think it's better to be Instead, when you're buying a deal, they'll be like the person who's got the large chunk of secured first mortgage, which in the event of a, a whatever default or, you know, they have to close the property and the lender gets to take the property and says, hey, I have to sell it. They get paid and whatever's left over goes to the unit holders or the person who has the down payment up that has the equity in the real estate deal, which is the difference between the debt and the sale price of the property. That'd be your equity. And so the equity could fluctuate. You could lose that. But this first secured mortgage is, if they lend it at 75% loan to value or 70% loan to value, which is very common, you'll see. And it's one of those things where I just feel like risk to return is, is the biggest thing you're gonna look for when you're making your, your first investment. Um, what is the risk and what is the return? 
The only other like thing on the axis is I consider wasting your time or your life investing in an asset, like let's say you're renovating yourself, managing yourself, I would consider that a higher risk to your overall health plan. So I would say that that's, even if you get double the returns in real estate, if you have to put in the work, let's say you get 25% return investing in real estate with your time. If your time is valuable to you, then that could be a huge risk to your overall plan. You're supposed to look at risk as like, what is the chance of me losing money? But I look at it as the chance of losing time too. I think risk of time is important as well. In real estate, I know I've gotten into deals where I've made five or 10 grand on a deal after two, three years, and I've put in all this time renovating it and fixing it up. My, my first property even, I only made like 10 grand. And I spent so much time investing in that deal, hundreds of hours renovating and fixing it up and managing it. And per hour, I probably made like 20 bucks, 20 bucks an hour. So it was not a good investment on my time. Um, so that's something to think about too when you're picking your first investment. If you want something really passive, that's super easy, or you don't have the money to qualify right now for a mortgage, or you don't have the money to put together for a down payment on a property, say you got five or 10 grand, it might be a good option to invest in the public markets. And if you like real estate, you could pick a good real estate investment trust or a REIT and invest in that REIT and get an eight, 10% return. You could also look to my favorite right now are the utility plays. Guys like uh, Enbridge or like the hydro producers, the gas uh, distributors like Enbridge sells gas here in Ontario. They pay like a 7-8% dividend. All the banks right now, or they were paying like a 6-7% dividend to own a, uh, one of the big five banks in Canada. So you can pick publicly traded stocks to invest in that pay healthy dividends. That's my preference. I like plays that are safe, that are consistent each and every month. I'm not a text-based player. I like to pay for cash flow now and growth be free. So I like to price in growth for, for, for nothing. Um, but where you're buying a tech play, it's like, hey, they have no cash flow now, but at some point there's gonna be earnings. At some point there's gonna be enough positive cash flow that makes sense. I just don't like those companies that have huge uh, price to earnings ratio because you're paying for speculation, for potential future growth. If Elon Musk dies tomorrow, what happens to Tesla? What happens to SpaceX? All the things he's invested in. There's a lot of risk there, right? So, and you can make a lot of money. People have made a ton of money. Let's talk about cryptocurrency, right? Make a ton of money there, but you're not investing in any businesses. You're not investing in anything that, in my opinion, allows you to produce a return other than selling it to someone else as the greater fool. I don't like investments where my only out is to sell it to someone else for more than I bought it for. There has to be a greater fool that will buy your stuff for more. Uh, I don't like that as the only out on my investment strategy. I like to have, as an example, cash flow. That's a, a pretty paramount number one priority in whatever I invest in is, does it generate cash flow now? If it has growth potential, awesome. But I need to see the cash today. I need to know that on average in six, seven years, I get all my money back. Even if there's no appreciation at all, even if the shares don't go up at all in value, I've gotten all my money back through dividends or through cash distributions and uh, the course of REITs, I guess. So that's a good question. Um, thank you for asking. And hopefully you can look into you know, some, some companies you want to invest in. I think if you're just getting started, you don't have the knowledge to really do a deep dive into the dogs of the TSX to find good dividend producing um, companies. You can look at the dogs of dogs of Dow is the strategy where you look at the worst producing companies that have the highest dividend yields and use that as your first screen to find companies that could potentially be undervalued. Um, it has produced better than the S and P 500. If you look at you know over 25, 30 year period, it's a decent way to select stocks. But forget that. Just buy exchange traded funds. Buy an ETF that buys a little piece of everything, and you'd be good to go. That's a good place to start investing to start building wealth. The biggest thing you can do when you don't have a lot of savings is to work hard right now, earn as much as you can, and spend as little as you can. So you can have a huge difference between what you're earning and what you're spending, and that'll be all what you're saving. And as you throw that away, 
into a savings account, into an investment account, it'll start, start building that top line where your, your earnings, your income, right? And so your income will grow because you start getting interest income, start getting dividend income, start getting that cash flow if you're buying real estate. And that's where you really start getting that difference between what you're, what you're earning and what you're spending. But when you're just getting started in the journey, a 10% return versus a 15% return or a 5% return versus 20% return on $10,000 isn't a lot of money. It doesn't matter what you invest in when you don't have a lot of money. It matters what you invest in once you start building a big net worth. Once your net worth six figures, seven figures, getting into eight figures, at eight figures, it doesn't even matter what you spend or what you earn. It's about the return on the investment of your net worth of your portfolio. That's what matters. So like at my stage in the game, I'm so a 1% difference in rate of return on my entire portfolio has more of an impact than my entire annual spending. So I got to think about that. Like that's, that's a huge mindset shift, right? And so most people watching this probably aren't at that mindset shift, but if you are, like that's an awesome place to be too. And we can have those conversations because we're blessed if we're in that category as well. But uh, yeah, great questions there. Um, hopefully that could add some, some value there to your day. Okay. Um, next question, creating your own economy. Yes, true. Gary Casey says, we'll have to check out Never Split the Difference. Totally do it. Diakou says, greetings, Mr. Rosar. Greetings. Why do you want the Tesla? Ever do the seven layers deep exercise? Yes, yes. Or the, what is it? The uh, Toyota 5Ys, I've heard too. I don't really honestly need a Tesla. Um, I have a car, I, like my previous owners at my house here, have the charging station in the garage and they had a Tesla. And so I feel like they've spent like five or 10 grand on this system in our garage for fast charging the Tesla. I'm just wasting it. I have a, I have a gas vehicle. And so I feel really bad about the fact that I have that station in my garage. And so there's, that's one piece of it is just like, I feel like I'm wasting away potential in my garage where there could be a Tesla and I wouldn't have to go fill up with the, another argument along with that is I wouldn't have to go fill up the gas tank. Like every two weeks I go get gas and put it in my car. That's annoying. I hate the smell of gas. It's not true actually, I like the smell of gas. Most of the time when it first comes out of the pump, there's like that euphoric smell of, of gasoline. It's kind of messed up because it causes brain damage, but I don't know, I just like the smell of it. But anyway, um, you have to go, to, you have to get out of your car. It's cold in Canada, you know, below zero. You, your hands are freezing. You're pumping into your car. It's just annoying. Um, so putting gas into a car and doing oil changes, that's annoying. For the Tesla, you don't have to do that. So I've been thinking, uh, I've been thinking it would save time. So I tried to make the business case on the back of an envelope that like, what's my time worth? My time's worth 500 bucks an hour, let's say, you know, or, or 300 bucks an hour conservatively. What is the, how many times I have to get gas in a year? How many times I have to go drive the mechanics, get an oil change, et cetera, so forth. Like there's all that stress associated with that. So I tried to put a value on that. And I almost justified that with the fact that on the highway, it can pretty much self-drive. So I was like, okay, like if I was doing enough driving, and it could save me time where I could just sit back and like have my laptop there or something, then the self-driving piece could save me enough time with those other factors that a Tesla could be justified or rather, I would buy a Tesla right now if it didn't depreciate. Let me get that wrong. The depreciation is what kills you. Like putting $70,000 out for a Tesla is nothing. It's a grounding error. It's not gonna affect me in a big way, but the depreciation is gonna kill me because I lose that money. If it was a deposit and I can get it back, I could sell the car. Like my, my car I have now, I have a, a Mazda 5, uh, it's a six seater, it's like a van car in one. It's a four cylinder vehicle. It's very efficient on gas, has a sliding doors like a van. It's great for our family, you know, it works perfectly. And it's pretty efficient on gas. But that vehicle as an example, I bought it for I think like 12 grand or something. I'll be able to sell it for 12 grand next year if I want to, as low K's, we keep good, keep it in good condition. It'll hold its value. 
because I bought it at, at a point on the defi on the uh, depreciation curve where it's it's kind of flatlined a bit, and I got a good enough deal that I'm a couple years ahead on the depreciation curve. And that's what you want whenever you're buying a used vehicle. If you're trying to optimize for the fire movement and how to buy a car, that's it right there. Um, but the Tesla depreciation curve is very steep. Technology depreciates very quickly. Look at a, an iPhone from five years ago. It's worth nothing. It's paperweight. And you pay $1,000 for it, and that's worth zero in a few years. The Tesla is a lot like a phone. It depreciates a lot faster than a different type of car because the technology in the batteries for solar or for um, electric vehicles is, is changing rapidly. And there is a huge depreciation curve with technology. So that's something that I'm cognizant of is when are we at the final model, like where we're going to plateau for a bit on the technology curve? Like when do we get the car that can do 1,000 miles? Can like safely in the winter. When we get to that point, then I think the Tesla is ready to kind of flatline where there aren't huge benefits to the next model. Right now, we're not there yet. And so I'm waiting patiently. Uh, it's something that I also just, I, I like to drive. I drove one when I was in Florida. My, the realtor down there, when we were looking at a deal, let me drive his. And it, it was a fantastically smooth ride. It, it's very safe. It's a, it's a luxury to drive. And it drives itself at points too. So that's kind of cool. When it did the first crazy rapid turn, I, I, I put it on, I sat back. I was like, oh my God, we're gonna crash. We're gonna, oncoming car, oncoming car. I had to like almost look away, you know, as we, and it made it. It was no problem, the self-driving feature. So the Tesla is an amazing vehicle. Um, it's just not there yet with the tech and it's very expensive on the depreciation curve. It'll cost you more than $1,000 a month in depreciation alone on the vehicle. So I think uh, I'm happy with my car. You know, we don't drive enough that it really matters. Like the gas difference is not huge. It's more the time that I could argue for and the luxury that I could argue for, but I haven't convinced myself of that yet, or my wife. So we'll maybe get there at some point, but good question. Okay, next question is, greetings, Diatu, thank you for the message. I love the mindset of earning it even though monetarily it's there. Yeah, I mean, totally, Raz says epic exercise, uh, or Sebastian says to Raz epic exercise. Yeah, I think that uh, it's a big one. You've gotta, you've gotta physically, I don't know, just something that I kind of trick my mind into to not get into this, I don't ever wanna be that rich douche. Like, I, you know those people that you meet that are just like arrogant, buy whatever they want, whenever they want, even if they can, even if you can afford it, I don't want, like I don't want my kids to think they can just have whatever they want. It's just not a good, not a good look it's not a good mindset to have and I think it's a good way to deplete family wealth so I want my kids I, I model for my own kids like I don't have a mansion as an example I could afford one I, I could buy an 8,000 square foot beautiful mansion or whatever probably still be within my my I've run the numbers I can be within my safe withdrawal rates and be okay but I don't need that right now I don't think my kids are ready for that right now I want them to see what it's like to live in an average you know upper average kind of neighborhood I want them to feel like we're a one-car family as an example all of their friends, I'm sure growing up, are gonna have parents that have more than one vehicle. We still car share. It's something like I can afford a second car, no problem, but I don't on the principle. It's the way we've always operated. And I want you know, my children to realize that, I don't know, they just, that resources are precious and they should be saved and invested. And to take a bunch of money out of an investment and put it into something that doesn't, I don't know, just doesn't have a good return. It isn't a good, it isn't a good mindset to have. Like, that sort of mindset perpetuates itself into poverty. And I wanna to continue to build wealth. I wanna to continue to show my kids that my job or my career, I guess, is to be a portfolio manager for myself. Like we manage our wealth and that's, that's the job in early retirement. It's a good job, it's very, very part-time. It's four hour work week type stuff if you want it to be. But uh, yeah, I don't know, I, I, it's just a mindset thing. 
Uh, so I'm just jumping into question. Victoria, I'll get to your question in just a sec here. I like that you've made it a habit to jump on the Wise Wealth Show every Wednesday. That's awesome to hear. Okay. Um, have you considered future expenses like children's tuition into your calculations? Totally, Johnny. Uh, I actually budget myself personally. I max out the registered education savings plan of the RESP for each of my children. So the government actually, if you put in up to a certain maximum each year, I believe it's 2,500 each year, the government matches an addition, or it might be 2,000 each year. I, can't, I think it's 2,500 each year. The government matches 20% automatically. So you get a free match from the government. That's an instant 20% annual return right there on every dollar you contribute up to a maximum. Plus it's in there as a shelter and your kids get to withdraw it tax-free. So all the growth on it, let's say it doubles or triples over 18 years invested in stocks, probably be quadruple over the time. Then when you pull it out, all that gets into the kids' hands tax-free. My plan is to have an RESP fund for each of my children and it's not to pay for their education, or I guess it is in a way, but I would take the money and guide them to use the, use the funds to buy their first rental property and house hack that. Have their friends live with them, have a duplex situation where they can live for free the entire time they're going through school, build equity, um, you know, hopefully get some appreciation while they're there, and learn the responsibility of running a little business. Because a property is like a business. Uh, that's the thing I love about real estate is it's basically a business. Each one is like its own little business and together you can can scale really quickly with real estate and it can become a pretty cool little portfolio of businesses that are all producing cash flow. Um, but I, I think that that's a big piece is making sure each of my kids is set, each of them get their own you know, property. And so they would pay for their own education, but I would set them up with enough that they'd be able to live for free going through school. And if they're smart about it, they could use that asset to generate positive cash flow to pay their tuition. And so then this, they would, if they're smart and they work hard and they hustle and they rent the rooms out and they whatever, and I'll help them with that and teach them along the journey. But if they use the tool given to them, they can walk away debt-free through school. That's what I did for 2019, house hacked my way through debt-free university. And I want them to have that same opportunity. I had to grind and scrape and save, work a minimum wage job to get the down payment and stuff. I don't, I do want them to work a minimum wage job, but I want my kids to be, have a little bit of a, a leg up, you know, like here's the tool, but you got to use the tool. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, they'd have to go to full-time school. So like, as long as they're registered in full-time school, the cash is, uh, is eligible for them to be receiving. So that's not a problem at all. I've already checked in on that. So yeah, I mean, they'd have, you actually have to, so the way the RESP works is to have the, you can still get the money out. You don't lose the money if they don't go to school. But as long as they go to school, then you get the, all of the grant and the growth tax-free, is my understanding, in the children's hand. And that can even be a one-year program. The way if you structure your RESP properly and a family RESP, then they could draw a whole whole whack load. I know someone who did uh, who did a flight program and they drew like sixty thousand dollars in like one year or forty thousand or some high amount in one year. So all they have to do is just go to a program. And I think eighteen years from now there'll be so many online programs that'll be eligible for the RESP that it's like just enroll in something, uh, even if it's an online course. You know what I mean? There'll be so many programs that'll be eligible. I think the way of the university path today. It's, it's deteriorating. We're not going to have the same institutional education system we do now. It'll be half online or you can go online and get a degree, right? And do it part-time while you're taking on that profession and getting experience, right? So I think that we're moving to a virtual world where it'll be different than it was today. So I'm a big fan, to be honest, of the RESP program. I think it's fantastic. It'll be, I'd be shocked if, like, I, I'm an Ivy graduate. My wife's also, you know, a graduate as well. I'd be shocked if my kids didn't pursue some form of uh, eligible education training and something. And I, I don't see my kids getting into the trades, to be honest. Um, I probably see them getting into like 
Uh, we'll see. Whatever my kids are interested in, but even if they're interested in art or something, we can find a program that they could do that would be eligible, right? So spend a year and get some education. That's at least a year. That's a minimum, I think, uh, just for an experience standpoint. And if you don't like it, cool, drop out, whatever. It's all good. A lot of people who have been successful have dropped out, so there's nothing wrong with that. But Bill Gates and uh, Mark Zuckerberg, they went to Harvard. They got into Harvard, and they went to Harvard. So you got to get there. Like people talk about, oh, I'm just dropping out. Oh, whatever, they dropped out, I don't have to go to school. They still had to grind, work hard, get into Harvard to meet the people, to make the connections, to build the resume, to then drop out. And it's cool, like, get there. And if you don't like it, cool, drop out. But you gotta show you can put in the work and get there first. I think that's an important piece to those who have really succeeded is on the resume they have, they went to Harvard. Who cares if you finished? You got in, right? You, you did it. So I think that's a piece of it too, right? Um, does the basement have to be legal to rent it out? When you sell your house, you have to pay capital gains on a rented basement. So it's a gray area. Um, you know, in talking to accountants that I've talked to, my understanding is if it's a legal duplex and you're renting it out and it's separately dedicated, then you'd mark off a percentage of that um, space that you're renting out if you rented it out the entire time. If you occupied the whole thing for family, as an example, for like one year and it's still duplex, you could argue that it should be all capital gains free. If you're renting out a bedroom or two, I right on this right on the website of the CRA, I was seeing that if it's like a lot less than your expenses, then you don't even have to really report it. There are people who rent out one bedroom, like four hundred bucks a month. You don't even have to really report that. It's so little. Like if you have like three thousand dollar expenses in mortgage, you get like five hundred bucks from a bedroom. The CRA doesn't care because you had a huge operating loss renting out that room. It's just helping offset some of your cost. It's not even it's not even in a profit situation. So it depends on the type of situation you're you're working on, right? Um, so it just depends, I think, is, a, is the answer. But yeah, if you're, if you're renting out a portion of your, if you've got a, got a duplex and it's a legal duplex and you've got a separate address and that's lo- rented out down there or up there and you live down below, whatever, then you have to say, hey, 40, let's say it's 40%. 40% of my house is, is, say, in this example, you rent out 40% of your house and you'd claim that that percentage of your house would be not qualifying for the capital gains exemption. That would be my understanding of how it would work. Um, but yeah, maybe that's why you should occupy and just rent out a room like why do you have to rent out the whole unit you can rent out a room as an example in your house or two rooms in your house if you wanted to and maybe occupy the living room and share the kitchen and rent it out to people you like people you want to hang out with in which case it's more like having family in my case it's kind of like family like Jonas who lives uh, down my, this is the other room that's vacant but Jonas lives in the other room and he's the goddaughter he's the godfather to my to my second born daughter right so he's he's family at this point like wherever I live he's, he's gonna be with me so we're uh it's different it's different, I think, depending on the situation you have set up. Or like, imagine if you had a nanny living with you as well. You know, nannies get like, I think, there's certain certain low deduction for room and board. A lot of people don't, wouldn't say, hey, like my nanny occupies 15% of my house, so therefore I don't want to, you know, pay, I want to pay tax on that portion. Most people just don't claim that. So it depends, guys. Calendar just opened up and said I had an, an event going on right now. I don't know what was going on with that. That was weird. I just accidentally, I guess the calendar invite came up and was like, hey, it's almost your daughter's bedtime. And I, my finger must have clicked it by accident. Sorry about that. Okay, next question. Appreciate the uh, king, the king in the cloud. That was, that was nice. How do I get into real estate as a side gig? Well, that's, I've answered that question before on this channel. There are lots of paths to real estate, right? Like how do you get it into real estate as a side hustle? You could be a photographer in real estate, that's a side hustle, and you're in real estate. You could do 
uh, home inspections, you could help with appraisals, you could be an assistant to a realtor, you could be an assistant to a real estate investor, you could be a property manager, you could be a leasing uh, placement specialist, you could be a wholesaler, where you buy properties and basically act as a realtor, but you're not licensed. You could be a realtor, um, you could be an investor in actual property, you could be just buying rental properties. There's so many different ways. You could be a contractor, fix up rental properties. There's so many ways you can invest in real estate that's hard for me to say, how do you get into it? But there are a million different pathways where you can start working for someone part-time and that's a side hustle in real estate, right? So many different ways you can hustle in real estate and, and make money, so many different paths. But I think the best way is probably to find someone who's doing what you wanna do in real estate and then shadow them, work with them. Maybe they'll pay you something, maybe act as their assistant, something to that effect. That's my favorite way um, to get started. Next question. By the way, thank you. Sorry I lost like 10 people there, but for the 61 people who are still tuning in and watching, thank you for staying with me, even though the stream cut out for a second. I uh, greatly appreciate all the people who are watching. For the 14 likes, let's see a few more smashes. That I really appreciate that. It's like when someone gives a speech and after you clap, it's the polite thing to do to smash the like button. Hit it. Thank you guys, appreciate that. Um, let's see, next one is, what do you think of buying a mobile home? It's like the pre-made one's cheap and it'll let me retire earlier. I mean, if it's, let's say you do the tiny house thing, the mobile tiny houses, it could be something that you pull behind in a truck and you could live there and be happy. I met someone actually in Florida when we were on vacation three years back who had a really cool tiny house that they pulled with like an F, uh, it was like a, a Ram 2500 truck that they pulled around their tiny house. Their tiny house had solar on it and like rainwater collection, it was super cool. Um, so I think that that's something that, it's a, cool, it's a cool goal. If you have kids, I couldn't imagine trying to have three kids and a dog and pull around a tiny house. But if you're just a single individual or a couple, that sounds like a really cool lifestyle, just traveling around. This couple that I that we met when we were traveling, um, when we met them in Florida, they were coming from Alaska and they'd come down into Florida and they were all around, they're just going around the world, driving around this tiny house. And that sounds cool. They, they had no mortgage, uh, there was no cost, they just park it. Sometimes they'd pay to park it. Like in this case, we met them at a park where they were paying to rent a spot too. And so that was kind of a cool experience that they were able to do that and, and share that. I think they were actually nurses originally and they were just taking some time off. So it was kind of cool to see that different lifestyle path. And if that makes you happy, do that. Like do what makes you happy. You don't need to have the house and the white picket fence and whatever. You can just go and do it. And let's say you'd like it for two years and you decide you don't like it anymore. Cool, come back, sell it, and use it for a down payment on a house or whatever. And you'd be, be all set. Okay, next question. So someone's trying to argue with me. Lucky Lion says, Tesla's actually keep their value better than gas cars due to software updates, especially when buying it with FSD. You know, this depends, I guess, on the grants and things you're gonna get as well. What I've seen is these cars retail for like 90 and you can pick them up on sale for like 50 and they're like three, four years old. Now gas vehicles do the same thing. I just don't buy, um, maybe there's a, there's a play there to buy a used one and the depreciation curve might be better. If I got a good enough deal on it, it might actually hold itself better than a gas vehicle. It's just that I bought my gas vehicle at one-fifth its value. Like it, it already depreciated to a point where it was one-fifth the value, and it kind of holds that value. Like the $10,000 value, it'll hold that until it's well over 100,000 kilometers. And so it's one of those things where, I guess if the Teslas were at that point where they depreciated that low, then it'd start making sense. It's just, it's hard to find the Teslas they have gone down that low and I've been tracking them. And over time, as the new models come out, I've been seeing there's been big drops in their value. So I don't know if that's actually true, if they hold their value better than certain gas cars. Um, I don't know. 
that's probably true. They, they probably do hold their value pretty well uh, compared to a new gas guzzler that drops half in value, right? I would never buy a new car, period. I just don't have an interest in that. It's just not me. Um, the depreciation curve is too steep on a new vehicle. But uh, maybe, never say never, you know? Maybe I'll change my mind and someone will convince me otherwise. I've been wrong before or I've been, I've had my opinion change. My perspective, my lens in which I view the world has been modified. Uh, it is very difficult to find a good property manager in my experience. Didi, that is 100% true. It is very hard to find a good property manager. I am forever upset with my property managers. They are always underachieving. Um, I have an okay one right now. Um, two, actually, that I have right now. I like to just split it up. I think it's better to have, I, I personally think it's better to have more than one manager if you can. That way, if one doesn't, something goes bad, then you have a backup one there. So maybe split your properties in half, have a couple of managers, um, kind of compare them, contrast them. Being all eggs in one basket is never a smart strategy. But there are benefits, I guess, if you give them discount, if they give you discounts for bringing more properties over, something to that effect. Um, yeah, it's tough. I mean, no one's going to care, no manager's going to care for your property the way that you care for your property, right? Um, no one's, they're not gonna try to rent it and keep vacancy to a zero as much as you do or keep maintenance down as much as you do because they don't have a vested interest in it. And when you align the interests, even then sometimes there's just not enough incentive. So, Merry Christmas. Thank you. It's a little early for Christmas, but I'll take the wishes. Thank you. To you as well. Okay, let's do a rapid fire lightning round and see if I, uh, see if I can get caught up here. Next question on the list is going to be this one. Spent months chasing a payment issue over summer. Ah, property managers. Yes. I, I still have issues actually with previous property managers that I've let go and always chasing money, um, accounting errors and issues. And I'm like, it isn't adding up here. We're a thousand dollars short. And so it's forever chasing. And it's, it's just, the industry is just plagued with bad people. The really good ones cost 15 to 20% of your annual rent. That's like, if you want a ma property manager that is like always reliable, never robs you, perfect with maintenance, perfect tenant placement, just does a great job and has good communication, everything, that costs you about 20% of your rent. If you include tenant placement on average every year and a half. So they'll charge you one month's rent to place a good tenant. And so you'll be paying your property management fee plus your tenant placement fees and with a little bit of markup on maintenance. You'll expect to pay about 20% of your rent. That's a lot. And when you run that in your calculator for a good property management, which will tip, they're unicorns where you find cheap managers that don't cost that much. But on average, you're gonna be 10% on management and 10% to leasing placement and about 2% for uh, maintenance markups. So you're losing about 22% of your rent. Now, if you put that in your calculator and your real estate cash flow is like 7, 8% or not that much, you're like, oh geez, private lending actually has better cash flow. Yes, it does. Being a mortgage guy who lends out first mortgages, you'll make more probably than you get cash flow from your real estate portfolio but your real estate portfolio is going to appreciate over time. And so that's the big piece is like cash flow isn't as good with real estate owning rental properties. I should be, I should clarify owning rental properties because there's so many ways to invest in real estate. They're not owning any property at all, uh, which we touched on a little bit earlier, right? You could lend in real estate, be a mortgage guy. You could you know, invest in, in REITs and funds and things like that. But um, yeah, I think that's a, a big piece of it. You're right. It's, it sucks. I wish there was a better way. I've found managers who are great for a while, who are cheap and who met all the metrics. Same with contractors. You'll find ones who are good for a while, but then they realize their value or they move on to another industry and it sucks. You got to look for another one. You burn through them. It's a tough business to be in. Property management and construction are the two hardest fields to sustain yourself in. And so you got to charge a lot to really um, 
to endure in the market. Akram says, hey Mike, if you would start from the beginning, do you think your financial degree was worth it? So did the IB finance degree that I have pay off? Did you learn some valuable skills, for example, accounting, or would you skip it? Uh, if I had to do it again, I probably wouldn't do it. Um, yeah, it sounds terrible to say, but I think if I invested, so I spent four years full-time grinding, uh, full-time education. And I, in that time, I spent $100,000 on tuition and living costs. So it's a hundred grand gone, plus the opportunity cost of four years, I'd say 50 grand a year. That's another 200 grand in lost earnings. And I lost four years of experience that I would have had. If I picked up a trade, as an example, I'd be, when I graduated university, I'd be going to my fifth year of experience. I'd be five years as say a plumber. I'd be full, ready to go, right? So like when you factor in how much loss there is going to school, there is no good argument for an early retiree or someone who wants to retire early to chase a four-year degree or more or a master's degree. Just doesn't make sense, financially speaking, if your goal is to retire before 35. You have, the payback period is after 35 for a doctor, for a lawyer, for anyone who chases any post-secondary um, education. Most of the time, the payoff isn't there. So that's something to think about. Um, oops, what did I do? We good? Uh, that's something to think about in the uh, in the conversation you're gonna have in your mind, where you're thinking about, hey, like you're gonna have two sides of your mind. They're gonna be torn between, is it worth it to go or not? I think there's some value to a one or two year business. I wish I would have, I wish I would have done like a two year business and at the same time worked full time. So made school not a priority, and like did it, got through it, got like a B average, whatever. No one cares what your grades are really. I I scored like top twenty percent my entire time through, like I was always an A student, even through Ivy, I graduated top quarter of my class. So I thought that mattered. I thought people would care, like that my investors would care, that my future business partners or whatever, my bosses would care and they don't care. They're like, that's cool, Mike, they graduated. In my final year of Ivy, I was top 10% of Ivy. Ivy's already the top quarter of all university students, in my opinion, in Canada. They're already the top cream of the crop. And then to be top 10% of that, it was like some achievement I was so proud of. But no one cares but me and like the other Ivy students at the time. After you graduate in the real world, no one cares. Um, it's like, that's great, that's great, Mike, you got 90, you know, 89% average in your second year at Ivy, and it's curved to an 80, like, good for you, Mike. No one actually cares, and didn't actually have any financial impact on my life at all. Um, so that's something to think about in the, uh, the grand scheme of things. I think that that's, um, when you put that in perspective and look at the opportunity cost of education, that's where the real money is. So if you could, if you could not waste your opportunity and do, if I could, do it again, I would, and I did work, in my second year I worked full time, I worked 35 hours a week while I was going to school. So I didn't waste all that time. I did spend a lot of the time um, really working hard, but I think that's the way to do it, is to go to school, not focus as hard on the school, get like a B average, whatever, but really focus on working through that time so you can build your resume with experience and you can earn money while you're going to school the whole time. Because that's the real cost of a four year degree is, You've lost four years, let's say 50 grand a year average salary. That's 200 grand in lost earnings, plus the cost of the tuition. The real cost is that you could have been working towards your early retirement and you're actually way behind when you graduate at 21. I graduated at 21. I guess some people graduate at 22. Depends when you go to school. I did 17 to 21 and those four years were, uh, I can't get them back. I learned a ton, by the way. Like, yeah, during the four years, I met a lot of great people. I learned a lot of really valuable experiences. I got into a good job. Um, which helped me get mortgages and stuff. And yeah, I have a, an education today that is, I can speak, you know, 
I'm very literate financially. That helps, I'm sure, in understanding accounting and finance and the stock market and all of that. I'm sure has added some value in the real estate space, maybe a little bit. I don't know. I, I was, a, I don't want to like toot my own horn, but I was a smart guy at 17 anyway. So I would have been able to go on the internet and learn all of that for free and probably be just as smart as I am today, just through self-discovery on the internet and talking to people. So I think you can learn that same education without paying $100,000 for that four-year degree. And you, I did a lot of, I took a lot of useless information in my brain. Like I take like philosophy courses and courses like some psychology courses that were actually interesting, but that didn't add any value at all to my career. Like I wasted a lot of time on essay courses about sociology of humans, just wastes of time that you don't ever use. And that information is now actually gone from my mind. Like I wasted a whole semester studying a course about something that doesn't matter at all, like history or whatever, like some boring facts that I'll never need to know. And I've now forgotten because they weren't useful. Um, like no one cared. I, I took uh, one of the courses I took was like ancient mythology. It was a really cool course. I really enjoyed it. But uh, yeah, geez, like I, I paid, if you think about it, like 1500 bucks a course at Western, something like that per course. So I invested hundreds of hours in learning ancient Greek mythology. There's some cool stuff in that. Wrote some, there's some cool stuff we did in that course, but that had no value to my fire journey or anything. Like I just, I paid $1,500 to learn information. I could have learned online for free. Uh, if I had a passion to search about ancient Greek mythology, I could have read uh, like Homer online for free. And so that's where I think there wasn't a lot of value in taking courses like that that are forced, you're required in your university experience to take those, the art electives and the essay courses and stuff that isn't valuable at all to your main degree, to widen your horizons or whatever, right? But you guys do that in your spare time, to be honest. Anyway, I'm getting on a rant. Time to go down and get some more questions banged out here. Some rapid fire round. Have you ever considered adopting? Elliot, we've thought about, like it's been a conversation. Um, I'm not closed off to it. I just haven't had the right opportunity fall and we're not actively chasing uh, like a fourth child. We're just trying to onboard ourselves for a third one. Uh, so it's something we've thought like right now we haven't really uh, considered it, but I mean, I'm not closed off to the idea. Completely understand what you were saying, Johnny. I missed the comment there, but praying your daughter doesn't need stitches. Me too, me too. Congrats on your third child. Thank you. Getting to Yes is another good book. Yeah, I've actually heard that one. It's on my list of, of uh, books to read. I have this huge list that I was, I used to have on a piece of paper that I was write, I'd write down books that people talked about. Uh, I haven't read that one. Josh says, can you explain how Cash for Keys works? Josh, I've done this one before a few times on the channel. I'm actually known um, in the media for using Cash for Keys and they really spun it in a negative direction. But Cash for Keys is completely legal and something that I recommend every landlord explore with their tenant. It is coming to a mutual agreement where landlord and tenant come together and mediate and find a happy solution where everyone can walk away feeling like they are well served in the negotiation. Cash for keys is the idea that a landlord offers a tenant cash in return for their keys to move out. You set a date, you say, hey, six months from now, will you move out? I will give you $3,000 to move out. That will cover, say you in this hypothetical scenario, your first and last month's rent at a new place and I'll give you a month free rent where you're staying now. The tenant is like, oh, that's amazing. You're asking me to leave. I will, I didn't wanna leave, but I will leave because you're gonna pay my rent at a new place and I get a free month's rent, cool. You want me out, you wanna renovate, that's a win-win or whatever, something to that situation or effect. I believe that landlord-tenant relationship shouldn't be adversarial. 
It should be landlord places, great tenants that they like, that they get along with. And by the way, not all landlords and tenants get along, just like not all people get along. You can have some like Rastafarian, terrible tenant that you doesn't align at all with some like nerdy landlord that's like the opposite in every way, right? And those two personalities might not align. The landlord tenant board's written so that landlords are basically slaves to their tenants. Unfortunately, there's, there's not a lot of power for a landlord. And so it sucks to inherit tenants. I prefer to always start with a clean slate and place my own tenants. I wanna place people in the building that I think are gonna take care of it, that are gonna get along well with me because I'm gonna have to talk with them. They're basically my customer. Like the landlord is selling space to someone, but it's a business and they're a customer. And real estate, rental properties is the only business where you're forced to have a customer that you don't like. If a guy comes into the car dealership and says, F you man, I hate you, punches you in the face. By the way, I know landlords who have had tenants punch them in the face and the landlord tenant board said they had to come back and continue to service the unit. You can't fire your customer, even if the customer is an a-hole. That's the landlord tenant board and that's why cash for keys should exist and should be prominently used. Sometimes it costs a lot to get tenants out. Um, it's my favorite way to get tenants out legally. It's until you agree and the tenant leaves willingly. There are situations where the tenant doesn't want to leave willingly, in which case you have to reno evict. Um, where you might have to demolish a unit or change it substantially so the tenant can't come back in. Uh, there might be situations where um, you come to an agreement where if they're behind on rent, you can evict them because they're behind on rent. Or if they continually pay rent late again and again and again on the third of the month or the fifth of the month, every single month for several months in a row, you can evict them on those grounds. If they're smoking inside of the unit, interfering with other tenants, you can evict for that. If they're blaring loud music late at night, it's annoying other tenants in the building. Those in my experience, six months to a year to get a tenant out that is actually like, I had a tenant that was doing the craziest things, like naked, um, flashing people, selling drugs, had crazy roommates that were like, just so many bad things, police always there. And that journey, I had a professional quote me at a year to get that person out. And that person was willfully doing damage and bad things to the house. In that situation, I paid that tenant few thousand dollars to leave and they signed paperwork that agreed that I'm gonna let them out of their lease and they're gonna go and they agreed they're going to leave. In that situation, that's a win. If I had to go through the legal means to get that tenant out, it took me a year. But instead they came, they left in a month or no, not a month, two and a half months, something like that. Uh, and that was a win. So that's, that's a situation where you wanna, that's what cash for keys is, is the idea that landlord and tenant can come together and agree to said terms. Sometimes you can go to a tenant and say, hey, would you be willing to leave? I'll help you find a new place and they'll leave for free. Some tenants are like, yeah, cool. I was gonna leave anyway next year. Like no problem, man, happy to help you out. I've come across a lot of great tenants that way. I'm that way. Like, if someone wanted me to leave and they didn't want me in their house, I would, I would just move on. But some people you know, dig their heels in. So you need cash for keys to incentivize uh, people to come together and agree. Okay, that's the question. Next one is, Not expensive to fix hybrids. I'm not sure about that. I believe hybrids are expensive to fix. The diesel from trucks smells the best, Raz says. Hey, Mike, do you need capital for private lending? If so, what's the minimum? Jason, yeah, I, uh, I am looking to lever up some of my properties that have some extra equity in them. So I, I would take a minimum 100,000 is the minimum I'd kind of want to borrow. Love the idea of risk on time, time is money. Always a good idea to factor into your ROI calculations. Totally, Elliot. I think that time is often overlooked and stress is often overlooked. I've spent two hours before a rental property and had the most stressful, I actually know someone who was stabbed by their tenant and the tenants, the landlord still had, to, they couldn't get rid of the tenant. They had to go and collect rent in cash 
from this tenant after they were stabbed by the guy. Um, he's charged with assault, but never, it's a long story. My, my point is stress and risk. In real estate, it's possible with some of the D-class properties, like in a nice condo downtown or a nice rental property, you're not gonna have this issue, but if you buy a rough like five unit rooming house in like East London, you might find this where there's some existing tenants that are pretty terrible. And honestly, return on stress. Having to go to that building even for 20 minutes, you might be like, oh, it's only 20 minutes a month. Even if it was 20 minutes a month, you'd have to pay me so much money to wanna to get involved in a deal like that. Like return on stress would be so high. There's one of my tripods. Um, forget what I was saying now. Return on time, return on stress is important in your return on investment. And some investors overlook that and say, hey, they're not factoring in how much risk there is with that. William, how you doing, William? William's always on here. So William Burkhead says, Mike, good evening. I watched the Eight Dimension video again this weekend. I feel like it's very hard to hit while working an office job. Any thoughts? Thank you. William, I know it's tough. Um, in general, getting to the sweet spot on the Eight Dimensions of, of happiness is very difficult. Like it's hard to balance your optimal like physical health with your optimal mental health, with your optimal financial health, with your optimal, you know, environment, your environment, saying that all up, right? With your spiritual, all of those, some of those categories could take all of your time just to master. And they're always growing and improving. So where maybe your goal to mastery of, of mental health or like even intelligence was say one goal, now it's something else. And so the human psychology is such that we're always adapting and growing. And it's something that um, it's hard to be forever satisfied. The goals will continue to change. And that's the beauty of it is that the equation never ends. You never beat the game of life. It continues to evolve. What you thought was the greenest grass you could ever get to, you get there and you look and there's another peak just a little bit higher. And you're like, oh, the grass is just a little bit greener up there. And so that's something that I love about it. Um, the only quadrant I think you can really beat is the financial one. You can master that. And the other seven, you have to continue to fight on all the time. Um, like physical health, as an example, you get to peak physical health, but if you stop, you lose that, you get back to how you were before. Um, financial, if you build it up and you put it on autopilot, it'll continue to provide passive income. That's why I love fa factoring that one in first and making priority on the financial so you can afford to master the other seven dimensions of happiness and wellness. And check that video out if you're curious on like what is the secret to a good life? Because that's what FIRE is all about, is how do you live that good life? I'm new, but long have been doing this. That's awesome, Sarah. Someone says that DD says IT certifications are easy to study from home and CFA finances as well. It's true. A lot of professions now are, you can be able to study that online at home. A lot of them are just book stuff. So you can do that online at home. TY for the advice for taking different property managers. Yeah, I'm a big fan of having multiple property managers and having that conversation that, hey, if this other property manager, or you could even have the conversation with the new one, say, hey, the other property manager I have is doing this, this, and this. I don't like that. Do you do this? And you can ask them. And if they don't, they're like, hey, no, I'm good about communication. This is, I give statements. This is how I do it. And they're good. You can say, hey, there's a carrot here that if the other property manager continues not to perform, I've got more properties for you. And see, so for both of them, you, or in the other one, you can say, hey, if you can improve these three things, I'd be happy to give you more properties. And so have the property management you know, firms kind of there as backups of each other. And if one doesn't go well, you have a redundancy built in. But having all your eggs in one basket, it's hard to migrate from property managers. It's a lot of stress to do that. So I would say that um, having a couple would be a pro tip. Um, have I ever thought of buying tiny house, tree house type Airbnbs? I looked at Leventhal, I looked at, uh, at an Airbnb cottage project I was really excited about, but the numbers just couldn't make them work for what I needed to see from a return on stress and return on time perspective. 
the ROI was there, but it wasn't from a return on time and stress. But I'm into it if I can make it work. Darius says, how do you feel about buying houses in multifamily when you've never visited the state as well as don't plan on visiting it anytime soon? Darius, I get nervous. I like to go and see the land, see the bricks, see the mortars, see where I'm investing. Once I'm familiar with the area and I know the types of buildings that are there, I know the values of the properties and I build a team of people there, then I can step away and I can bring someone in to you know, execute on my behalf. But I'm not comfortable doing that until I've been to the area and I've really had a chance to become familiar with the real estate there and the comparable properties. I need to know an area well before I'm interested in investing there. So I like to, when I invested in Florida, I went down several times and I explored the market each time. I looked at almost a hundred properties, right? That's what you gotta do to really understand the market. And then once you do, then I think it's important you've built that trust, you went around with them, you've made, seen if, the, if they met certain metrics. And if they have, you've got the team there where you can have the agent be checked on by the contractor who can be checked on by the property manager you checked on, right? you gotta have multiple redundancies in place. And that's the biggest thing is having the property manager come in and take pictures of the contractor's work to verify the contractor, right? And et cetera and so forth, back and forth. You can do that to make sure things are actually going as, like when you send your maintenance guy there, is he gonna be able to verify the work of the property manager placing a good tenant or whatever. You can set up systems and I think you need to go there first and physically be there to set those systems up. But then once everything's established and you've set those systems and you've got the experienced team and you understand the area, then I think you can step away and you can run a portfolio outsourced. I outsource my portfolio for the most part now and it's going all right. You know, you're just less cash flow because you're outsourcing, but you have to say, hey, their time's worth less than my time. And as a result, I need to be hiring them to do the task as opposed to doing it myself. Even if it's 80% it's good, it's better than me doing it myself. It's a hard conversation to have, but you gotta have it up here. Do I know any reputable realtors in Toronto? Uh, yeah, I know a few. You could DM me and I could pass you a few contacts. Uh, is it hard to convert a single family to a duplex? Do you just do it through the city? Um, yeah, you'd have to, if you wanna legally make a property from single family to duplex, you would have to apply for a secondary dwelling unit or a duplex permit. Uh, there are a couple of ways to go about doing that, but the process is, it's simple enough, but it does take time. There are a series of steps you have to move through and if you're not experienced going through it, expect efficiency letters from the city and 20 business days between each reviewing of each submission. So it could be 20 business days for your deficiency letter, then you have to resolve that over five business days, you resubmit, 20 business days for them to look at it, then they resubmit with their comments, it could be another 20 business days. You can end up being months just getting the permits and then going through the inspections. It could take you six months to a year of lost rent and holding costs to convert to a duplex. The best case scenario could be a few months is the fastest I've ever seen it done here in my area. Um, most municipalities are the same. There are some smaller municipalities where it's easier to maneuver through. COVID's made things extra difficult uh, during this time. How can I invest in your business from Winnipeg? Um, so from Winnipeg, the only way to really invest with me would be to put a mortgage on my properties or to invest with my real estate corp. You know, I could borrow the money and pay a fixed set of return. Say it was eight to 10%, something like that. Say it was 10% if you lent uh, $250,000, then you would get $25,000 a year paid monthly. It'd be almost $2,100 a month in residuals, any transfer, post-data checks. It's kind of how I do it. Uh, I like to maintain control. So I don't bring the equity partners on anymore. I will instead borrow it as debt and pay a fixed return as opposed to a floating return. That way you know exactly what you're going to get. I'll personally guarantee it against my net worth. That's how I do it. So I'll put up one of my properties or I'll put up my corp and give my a general security of assets on my corp, and I'll usually personally guarantee it with my net worth when I borrow for a project. And so I put my own wealth on the line, and that's because 
I'm at this stage now where I've built a good amount of wealth and it's easier for me to borrow against the equity I have in my stock portfolio, which I have a good size stock portfolio, than it is to cash out my stocks and use my own cash. So I prefer to just borrow against money I already have in properties and you know in businesses and then in a stock portfolio that I have than it is to uh, use my own cash. I don't wanna have to sell and pay capital gains tax on all my, my stock portfolio or my real estate portfolio. So it's easier to actually borrow the capital out. So I mostly just use my own equity to do all the deals that I do now, uh, but yeah. Uh, the only place to get a hold of me would be uh, rosehartproperties at gmail.com, R-O-S-E-H-A-R-T-P-R-O-P-E-R-T-I-E-S at gmail.com or on Instagram at Mike Rosehart would be the places to get a hold of me. And then from there, I can give you more details if you want to chat with me or whatever. Um, I also occasionally do coaching calls with people who are watching, but they're booked out now till like February because I only do like two a month. But if you're interested, you know, feel free to, to shoot an email. I don't really have any major capital needs right now. But in January, I have a sixplex closing and we have a duplex closing and another single family in Sarnia actually um, closing, which are all really good value opportunities. I'm looking at buying like 50, 60 cents on the dollar to what they're worth. So there's a huge lift there where it can make sense for me to borrow at a high interest rate, like between eight and 10% until I've stabilized the property. And so that might mean I'm renovating it. And so for that time, it's cheaper than putting on a fixed rate mortgage and that breaking out of that mortgage and refinancing. It's cheaper just to put a more flexible type mortgage on that property. But yeah, there's lots of opportunities always to invest with me. I don't take on a lot of investors. I have to like working with the person. So I like to talk to the person first to make sure there's a, a mutual agreement of, of terms. I don't want someone to lend me money and then a month later, like want their money back and that'll mess up my project. So I wanna make sure that our goals are aligned um, before I kind of work with someone and that's kind of the way I do it. But uh, I'm not actively growing the way I used to be, right? I'll take on like maybe 10 projects a year. And so there's not, I don't have, a huge need for capital. I'm sure I could raise it through YouTube a lot easier than the amount of capital that I need. So it's kind of a, an abundance mindset situation where we can find a, if I like the person and I work with them, then I'll add them to my investor list. And it's a short list. I keep it like under five people that I kind of like to work with. So maybe there's an opportunity for us to work together. We could reach out and if, if things work out, we could uh, have a conversation further and maybe work together. Uh, did I get any questions missed here? Chang, how you doing? Good to see you on. How do you trust out-of-state agents? It's tough. You can't put all your trust in the out-of-state agent whose conflict is that they get paid when you buy something, right? So they'd be incentivized for you to buy whatever. Um, trust is, is earned. It's not given right away. So how do you trust them? You have to do a lot of deals with them. You have to physically babysit them until you've built that level of trust up. Um, yeah, it's tough to invest out of state if you're not going to go there when you're taking the deals down Darius. Maybe find a local operating partner. That might be a good idea to help you uh, kind of navigate those waters. Cool live stream. Thanks, Brandon. Great show. Do you focus on income splitting with your kids and your wife? With my wife, yes. Um, totally 100%. She's actively involved in the business and I split almost all my properties we're, we're together on. So that's something that we're able to kind of income split as business partners. But... Um, my kids, not yet. My daughter's gonna be five shortly, so she's almost old enough where I could probably bring her on in marketing efforts or have her do like filing for me. She could organize receipts in different piles based on the property. She's really smart. She actually could do that. If I if I gave her like 10 folders of like, these are the 10 properties that you have to try to organize these receipts. Now on top of the property, I had a code on top. She could probably organize them into different files and do all of our filing. I could probably start paying her a salary. I'd probably pay her 500 bucks a month to do that. That's probably what I'd pay a filer anyway. So, good idea. I should start income splitting with my eldest. Uh, just 
got out of a condo annual meeting. Can't imagine how awful it must be being a condo investor if management board is bad. Yes, Alex. Ugh. I've only invested in one condo of, I've, I've done 80 deals, more than 80 deals, 80 properties, and only one was a condo because it was undervalued. I don't like condos. I don't like not having control. I don't like the fact that condo fees can go up at any time. I don't like the extra fees associated and the reduced cash flow associated with condos. Here in Ontario and in London, there aren't a lot of, like in the US, there's HOAs everywhere. And like the good properties are all in HOA communities, right? HOA um, fees associated with that. But here in, in my area, like there aren't a lot, like most of the stuff doesn't have condo fees, right? So a lot of the rental properties, you don't have to be in a community and pay a fee. And so if you don't have to, you should avoid that because again, there's been a lot of mismanagement in a lot of the condo corps. You gotta be very careful and do a lot of due diligence when you're investing into, uh, into condos. So something to look out for. There are still good opportunities. The one condo that I bought was a townhouse condo and it was a fantastic deal when we bought it. And so no regrets there, but there's always been a risk that our condo fees could have could have rised up. There was an accepted understanding that our return on investment on cash flow was lower because again, we had to pay a condo fee. They took care of the snow and the grass. It was more expensive than if I just outsourced the snow and grass myself, but you're forced because they have insurance and staff and overhead costs. And they limit what you can do in that condo corp. One pro though in London, Ontario about condo corps and townhouses. That's not true actually, I've done two, two condos. There's a second one I did near Fanshawe as well that I forgot about. Um, so I've done two, ever. There's a third one that's a freehold that I did. It was like a condo, but it was a freehold where the four people were kind of like a condo where they agreed to split things, but there was no actual condo board in place. So I've done two, two condo deals. Um, and I did well on both of them. We bought them significantly under market value here in London, like 180,000 and 160,000 we paid for them. They're worth like, one of them's worth almost 300 something. The other one's worth like, 270, 280, 290 in that range right now. So we're actually selling them, selling one of them off. But um, I forgot the point I was gonna make. Lost my train of thought here, guys, with the uh, condos. But basically the point being that you don't have the control and there's reduced cash flow as a result. So, oh, uh, I remember the point. The one pro that got me investing in them back in 2018 was that rental license program here in the city of London is exempt on freehold townhouses with no condo corps and all condo corps. So there is no regulation from the city of London related to submitting drawings, getting a rental license, getting a fire inspection, getting a municipal bylaw standards inspection here in London, which is a major hurdle. It's a lot to go through. They're exempt on those properties. So you buy a student rental, a five bedroom townhouse, condo, pay the $200 a month condo fee, and you never have to deal with the city ever. Near Fanshawe, Western, loading full students. There was a play there, and that was the play that we exploited. So there is um, an opportunity sometimes with condos. There's a play for everything, right? Ooh, we got a super chat. Is it true the agents are not incentivized to get top dollar out of a property? Reading Freakonomics right now, waiting an extra month may not help them. Um, yeah, so Kent, the, the question is, are they incentivized to get top dollar? So sort of, in that they get a commission paid, let's say their commission is 2%. And if a property sells for an extra $100,000, more than what it sold for, um, the extra 100 grand, they get 2% of that. So they get actually two grand in their pocket. So they're, of course, incentivized to get as much as they can. But when we talk about a deal that's easy for them and it's $5,000 difference from another offer, they might push you to take the lower offer that's $5,000 cheaper because it's easier for them, less work for them to do. They get a better return on their time. And so, and $5,000 for them, by the way, is like we're talking 
50 bucks in commission, something like that, right? Like maybe 100 bucks in commission on 2%. So that's not a huge deal to a, to a real estate agent where they might not be incentivized to, um, you know, they might not be incentivized to really be looking out for your best interests. And there are a lot of agents who just don't care. If your property takes three months to sell or one month to sell, they don't care, Ken, because they get paid the same commission either one month or three months from now. And so there's no incentive for them to sell it right away fast, other than like return on time. They don't want to be showing it a ton of times. Like, as an agent, I want to sell a house quick. That's a return on time. And I know that house sells for the most amount of money in the first 10 days on market. That's just a fact. So you want to sell your house fast. Once your house has been stale and sitting on the market, it's not going to sell for as much. So as an agent, I get less commission. So yeah, I mean, most agents would be incentivized to sell it for the most that they can. Not all agents are created equal. Jeez, we're at 72 and a half minutes in. My other daughter's gone to bed already. I have got to wrap this stream up. I'll do one more question. Time has gotten away from me tonight, guys. I'm so sorry. I was supposed to end this stream around eight o'clock and we're way past that. Um, thank you all so much for watching. I'll do one more question. I'm going to pick... Uh, I'll do two. This one on real estate photography, a good camera for a thousand bucks and maybe one of those 3D cameras to do the eye guide tours would be all you need. Elliot quoted me there. I like that. You never beat the game of life. Micro start 2020. Someone send that to me on Instagram. That'd be funny. I'll share it on my stories. I'll do, I'll pick this question here. Where can we look for cash flowing properties that meet the 1% rule? I've talked about this question before, but I want to hit it again because the market's always in forever changing. Um, the, the answer is there are 1% rule cash flowing properties in almost every municipality if you know where to look and how to squeeze your tongue just right. So not all 1% rule deals are created equal though. Let's remember that fact that the rooming house is totally different than the single family house. You're gonna have a different experience on a 1% rule D-class property that's a rooming house than you are from a nice 1% rule family house. Uh, here in London, you'll find 1% rule if you know how to twist your tongue just right. You buy a property that's a two bedroom house and you convert it into a six bedroom rooming house. You rent it out by the room. And all of a sudden, now you're gonna have 1% rule cash flow. You can still get that money, but you had to put in work, time, energy, money, um, and you had to now rent out six different rooms. That's a bit of stress, a bit of hassle. But if you're down for that, you can get 1% rule student rental. It still exists here in London, you still see it. Um, I've seen people crank out in Toronto 1% rule properties as of last year. I know a guy who bought a property downtown near U of T and he bought property and converted it and added 14 bedrooms. Diced it up, put TVs in every room and rented out 14 bedrooms at like 900 bucks a piece. And the property is under a million bucks, so it's 1% rule. When he was all done, it was 1% rule. So even in Toronto, you can find 1% rule. If you're willing to cram a bunch of students into a place and renovate it just right and twist your tongue just the right way um, to make the numbers work, you can play with real estate to get more cash flow. So he just basically severed the house up into a bunch of bedrooms and bathrooms. And that's how he got the maximum amount of rent out of each square foot of this building in, in Toronto. So even in Toronto, you can find 1% real properties. You just, they're rare. They're very rare and they require, you gotta find a good deal. You gotta put a lot of work in. So that's the last question for tonight. Thank you all so much for watching. I really appreciate everyone who's tuned in tonight. We've had 150 people come in and out tonight on the stream. So I'm really thankful for everyone who's tuned in. And for all the likes, remember, when you smash that like button, it's a lot like clapping after someone gives a speech. It's a way of saying, hey, I appreciated what you had to say. It's polite. In fact, it's actually rude if you stand, when everyone's clapping after someone speaks and you don't clap, that's rude. People look at you like, what are you doing? Why are you clapping with this guy? You enjoyed his speech. So anyway, tonight, if you smash that like button, that'd be your way of clapping. And if you're watching the replay of this, Hello, follow me on Instagram, I'm Mike Rosehart, at Mike Rosehart, just like it sounds. Uh, I do stories six to eight times a day, every single day. 
pretty much consistently. So if you want to follow me along on my journey for the things that I share or decide to share for my life on Instagram, you can follow along and check that out. I'm posting all the time, every day. And uh, yeah, I'll see you guys next week. The secret to unlocking a wealthier you, you know what it is, the three levers, spend less, earn more, and maximize returns on the difference. Have a good Wednesday, everyone. See you next week and in the comments. If you're watching this in the replay right now, drop in the comments and say hello. If you had a question that I missed, after this is done, paste it in the comments and I will respond for everyone to see. I read all the comments, so leave them